I'm Grant. And I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. That's right. We went from I do's to iTunes. That was the better one you came up with? I still don't like it. Um, I mean, I like the wordplay, but it, 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 it doesn't really get across what we do. It makes me wonder what your second choice idea was. I, I worry about what happens if we get to a year of this. <laughs> I can't wait to find out. So, uh, last time you won the coin toss. Yep. So, what are you going to teach us today? I'm not. We are getting rid of that stupid coin. It is gone. It is in a ditch somewhere, never to be seen again. Yeah. Returning listeners will will know that uh, at the end of the last episode, we asked you all what you thought about our coin flipping strategy, the, that little conceit of the show, and the, y'all agreed it was dumb. That that was the <laughs> consensus. Yeah. So I'm taking a turn today. Yep, we're getting rid of that coin toss. I'm going to it might come back in like special cases, special maybe. occasions. Maybe. Never say never, but certainly not right now. Yeah, we're so so we're gonna alternate for the most part. We're gonna do what we're gonna do. Just yeah. trust us. Yeah, we're gonna go with it. So that means I I've seized control of the means of production. Uh, my favorite thing to do. And uh, so we're going to talk about the history of television ads in presidential campaigns. Oh, oh boy. Aren't you so excited? Yeah. It, it does strike me as funny because, like, I'm going on about how depressing your stuff was. But this is like, it eats away at your soul. There, we're we're going to get to some cynical, cynical stuff by the end. Hey, my stuff was only super depressing because it was one after another. Now I can do super depressing stuff, yeah. and you can do happy stuff in between. Sure. Not today. Uh, <laughs> so let's start with talking about what we're going to talk about. Okay, uh, what are we talking about? So campaigns, you know, they're around to win elections. They need to get the message out. Whatever their message is, it needs to get to people. Yeah. So uh, before television, there was, you know, newspapers, there was radio spots, there was sitting on the caboose of a train as it crisscrossed America and you wave at people. And there people, was the town crier. Just ringing a bell. Uh, uh, all here, all here. Politics. <laughs> Incremental tax increases on 5% of Americans. That does not sell papes. Cowboy told me that. Newsy sell papes. Uh, <laughs> they do dig it. <laughs> with the advent of television, there's a new medium, and uh, with a new medium, the you have a new message. I think McLuhan said something like that. Not quite. Let's run with it. Uh, so, here's some, some questions to have in your mind before we get started. I have to have questions? I'm giving you questions. Okay. Whether you keep them or not, I, that's up to you. Okay. I feel like this is homework. It's a history podcast. Every part of it feels like homework. No. Not when I'm just talking. <laughs> but now I have to, like, think. Oh, nuts. Thinking. So, those questions. <laughs> Has television or anything else we're about to talk about really changed American politics, or is this more a case of the more things change, the more they stay the same? And a, a related question you may want to keep in mind. 
Is this the story of how presidential campaign politics changed in America, or is it the story of the way advertising as a whole did, and we're just sort of checking in on it every four years? You're going to tell me the answer to these, right? No. Oh, man. <laughs> it is a test. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the most significant changes in campaign advertising from the first TV spots to today, uh, some of the most significant individual ads, and some related issues along the way. Uh, before we get started, I'd like to give a shout out to The Living Room Candidate. Uh, that's a resource from the Museum of the Moving Image. You can find it at livingroomcandidate.org. It is a really well-curated archive of uh, TV campaign ads from 1952 to 2012. And I'm sure within a few months of this year's election wrapping up, they'll be up to date. Oof. So, like I said just a second ago, 1952, that's where this all begins. Okay. In 1942, one in 200 American homes had a TV. That's half a percent, right? Mm -hmm. So by 1958, over 80% did. That's just an explosion. No household technology had ever spread so rapidly into living spaces. Like yeah. the, the refrigerator took forever. The radio was a, a snail's pace compared to television. So smack in the middle, we have 1952, uh, the Eisenhower-Stevenson race. Uh, Eisenhower was the first to buy TV spots at a minute or less. So the first thing we'd really recognize as a commercial spot. Okay. Now, before that, campaigns like to buy half hour or hour blocks to air full speeches from the campaign trail. You just get the whole unfettered, unfiltered so th this idea for bite-sized pieces that could be inserted into existing programs, like any other kind of ad, uh, came from Rosser Reeves, an uh, ad exec who's also famous for coming up with the melts-in-your-mouth-not-in-your-hand slogan. Ooh, I like that slogan. Yeah. Because those things are tasty. <laughs> we we can say M&Ms. I don't think they'll sue us. Are you sure? I'm Okay, maybe they'll send us free M&Ms yeah. if I t say how much I really, really like them. If you take peanuts, this, peanut M&Ms. If you take your uh, listening device, dear listener, into the bathroom, look in the mirror, turn out the lights, and say M&Ms three times, we will either get sued or we will be sent free M&Ms. Also, tell them in case they're listening, those coconut M&Ms were garbage. Okay, now it's sued. Great. <laughs> Uh, we, we collapsed the waveform there. So uh, the, these initial ads were a series called Eisenhower Answers America. There were 40... Like Dear Abby. Basically. <laughs> there were 40 of these spots that they scripted. They were about rising prices and national defense. The, the important issues of the time. They'd have an average person on the street asking a question to General Eisenhower, and he in, in his grandfatherly tone would give a bit of straight talk right to the camera. Now, Eisenhower recorded all 40 of these in a single day, just pop, pop, pop. And uh, on another day, they got random people off the street to play the random people off the street. To, like, read the question? Mm-hmm. They were tourists who were picked up outside Radio City Music Hall. So not actual questions people had. Entirely 100% scripted. And if you watch one of these ads, perhaps on livingroomcandidate.org, uh, the, the framing is really interesting. They have 
your average Joes from like waist up, uh, sort of a medium wide shot. And they're looking up off to the side so that Eisenhower is placed above, you know, he's like your dad. He's the voice of God. He, he has this position of authority just from the framing. I do like blocking. Okay. These were pretty darn effective, but the single most famous ad is the I Like Ike cartoon, sort of a jingle of the uh, classic hard sell. All these people marching in line with campaign signs, seeing this really repetitive jingle about how they like Ike. I like Mike and Ike, too. Just sort of a big bandwagon approach, you know, and... Again, that's where advertising was in the 50s. You just name your product over and over again and how it's going to make your life better. And it's made all these other people's lives better. So why not sell Eisenhower the exact same way? Adley Stevenson was running against him, did not want to, but sort of got pressured into it. He said, quote, The idea that you can merchandise candidates for high office like breakfast cereal is the ultimate indignity to the democratic process. <laughs> he was the first and last candidate to refuse to appear in TV ads. And from statements like this, uh, Madison Avenue ad agencies refused to work for democratic presidential candidates for years and years to come. Huh. It is like, okay, uh, you're going to throw us under the bus like that? God, what a grudge. <laughs> Such a grudge they held. So Stevenson, his big TV strategy was the same thing. He bought time to read his speeches. He didn't appear in these. There was just a, a still image, so it might as well just be radio. Uh, yeah, that's weird. And he was often cut off for time. I mean, they could have at least had, like, I don't know, a nice picture of, like, a squirrel moving around <laughs> or something. Something to keep the viewer interested in the watching. I think that might have distracted well, from the point, the, the squirrel specifically. It could be a patriotic squirrel. <laughs> could have a little, like, Uncle Sam hat. Oh, have you American know? flag. That squirrel was on the beaches of Normandy. He ran again in 56 and tried to use television more effectively. It just didn't work out. They, they had uh, Mark Guggenheim, the documentarian, get him on camera in his office. It's just, for a number of reasons, the the... Uh, rematch was was doomed to go the same old way. Now, television is famous for deciding uh, the 1960 election between Kennedy and Nixon. Uh, Nixon's campaign was a lot like Eisenhower's first, uh, with the candidate speaking directly to camera about an issue. Uh, instead of the, the authoritative Eisenhower, everybody looking up at him, there, there were no public questions. It's just uh, Nixon staring dead into the camera with a slow zoom on his face so that he's getting more imposing, you know, he, he's cutting a stronger, more authoritative image as things go on. How far did they zoom in? Like, straight up his nose? Like, 25%. Oh, that's you know? disappointing. I just would have want like, closer and closer and closer and closer and closer, and closer till it was, like, smushed against his face. Until Richard Nixon licks the lens, yes. Yeah. He, he also had a, a way of relating every issue to the communist threat. Of course. You know. Like, uh, he, he supported civil rights because we have to stand as a unified people against the communists. Ah, oh, of course. <laughs> Kennedy's ads uh, had... A bit of variety to them because two competing agencies were working on the campaign. Oh. 
one of them did a series of staged celebrity endorsements and other spots targeting voting blocks. Uh, things like Jackie Kennedy doing a, a sort of boilerplate ad, but entirely in Spanish. Or Harry Belafonte, famous 1960s actor, talking about his time meeting the, uh, the candidate and asking him questions about his concerns as a Negro. It is 1960. What are you going to do? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, the other uh, half, the, the other agency, really wanted to capitalize on Kennedy's ability to speak extemporaneously, speak to crowds, think on his feet, and be a man of the people. A lot of the, the most famous and most effective stuff from his campaign came from that side. So uh, at an event where a woman asked him about his ability to be an independent president as the first candidate who, who was Catholic. And so he, he gave this off the cuff and very, now very famous response about uh, the First Amendment, the Sixth Article, uh, the Oath of Office, all of these things that affirmed the, the separation of church and state and his duty to act independently, no matter what the Pope might say America should do. Does, not a lot of people remember all the speech, though, it seems. <laughs> Quite a few candidates that have come through since then don't seem to remember this uh, speech. There, there is no religious test for office. Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution. Also, highlights of the first televised debate made their way into uh, TV ads. So you've got the, the famous story about how people who listened to the debate on radio uh, said that Nixon won, but people who saw their faces said that the youthful and relaxed Kennedy won compared to the uncomfortable and shiny Nixon because <laughs> he refused to, to go in for makeup because he's a man. Where the powder? Where the powder? <laughs> no help. Uh, but Kennedy's most famous uh, single ad probably was also a jingle, just a, a song with a bit more substance than the I Like Ike jingle. Uh, to have a marching band. W would you like to see it? Okay, that is like an intro to like beach party bingo type thing. <laughs> like the opening credit roll, and I love it. Basically. The movie is called Kennedy for President, and that is the theme song for mm -hmm. that movie that will star Annette Funicello Cello, and like Frankie Avalon. Yeah. Welcome to 1960 America. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's this jingle uh, of a montage of people holding up signs and just being Americans from all walk of life who want a man who's old enough to know and young enough to do. 1964, in the swing of, well, everything in America going a bit crazy. <laughs> Obviously, uh, it's, it's not a... Rematch, for one reason, Kennedy had been assassinated. So now President Lyndon Johnson was running to be elected after uh, assuming the presidency uh, against a uh, challenger, Barry Goldwater. Now, 1964 is when negative campaign ads are raised to an art form. Even Eisenhower Answers America had some shots at how, you know, do you really want another four more years of these Democrats who don't know what they're doing? But that's nothing compared to what happened in 1964. Uh, so Lyndon Johnson just came out swinging against Barry Goldwater and 
straight up steamrolled him. Goldwater stuck to the, the tried and true Republican tactic of direct-to-camera ads, but because of all these attacks, he spent all of them just trying to explain away what Johnson was saying about him, which kept those accusations in the public eye, gave them a longer <laughs> shelf life. So he wasn't getting his stuff out, he's just giving denials and explanations and, oh, well, really. Nowadays, people recognize you don't want to spend time and money on. Yeah. You, you want to just avoid it, and right. then it will go disappear, ideally. Now that we are 12 years later, after Stevenson uh, re rebuffed the entire notion of advertising, Madison Avenue firm Doyle Dane Birnbach uh, approached Johnson's campaign and basically said, we are terrified of a Goldwater presidency, so uh, we're, we're hitching our wagon with you guys at this time. Let's make some commercials. <laughs> DDB, they, they were pretty famous for Volkswagen's Think Small campaign huh. that transformed how cars are advertised. Uh, Avis's We Try Harder Because We're in Second Place <laughs> campaign. <laughs> so they're, they're sort of daring, outside-the-box modern that that was their whole deal their their niche in the advertising game some famous ads they put out the the ice cream spot about uh test ban treaties the eastern seaboard ad the kkk ad any one of them could have been remembered as the most effective attack ad in history again i really recommend people watch these because they're just so good <laughs> as short films honestly but they're all overshadowed. None of them get anywhere near the attention as the Daisy ad uh, by sound engineer Tony Schwartz. One, two, three, So the ad uh, shows a little girl counting as she pulls the petals off a daisy. Counting poorly. When she gets all the way up to nine, she's interrupted by a voice beginning a countdown from ten, which ends in a nuclear explosion. Then a voiceover from President Johnson. These are the stakes to make a world in which all of God's children can live or to go into the dark. We must either love each other or we must die. So I think what that commercial mm -hmm. is saying is that if that child knew how to count properly, a nuclear explosion would not have happened. So we need better education. The, the thing is, the reason people were terrified of a Goldwater presidency is that he was on record saying that, yes, he would absolutely use tactical nuclear weapons in certain circumstances. He would be open to starting a nuclear war. Mm. I, I mean, among other positions, but yes, he, he's the last candidate to ever make a statement like that, in part because it scared the pants off of all of America. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Barry Goldwater is never mentioned, uh, never directly alluded to. They don't ha use any of these quotes, though there were plenty. But it's obviously about his willingness to start a nuclear war. The ad aired only once during NBC's Monday Night at the Movies. <laughs> but uh, the, the ad had such a reaction, such an impact, that it made the news. So it got rerun on every other channel's uh, news programs. For free. Yeah. Free money. See what they did there. Later campaigns even referenced the ad. It became so famous in and of itself. There's a 1996 ad that starts with bits of the Daisy ad 
and then goes on to say that it's drugs that are the apocalyptic threat to America's children today, and President Clinton isn't doing enough. I now remember the ice cream one mm -hmm. that you showed me. And that child also ate an ice cream really poorly. <laughs> what is with these child actors they're getting and not being able to count or properly lick an ice cream cone? It, it heightens the sense of vulnerability and innocence. They have to be protected. Okay. So you're saying we should bomb all the children. No! And we should put strontium-90 in their ice cream so they learn to lick it better? No! I just think it's interesting that they... They obviously chose people who or kids that were very like not performers based kind of thing. Like right. they were not It's not the Welch's kid. It's yeah. Not, it's not the Pepsi girl doing these ads. Yeah. It's it's just someone's kid and they're like, go after this ice cream cone kid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically. I mean it it could be your kid. It is the ideal it, it's the girl next door, it's the daughter you have at home, and Goldwater is going to kill her. <laughs> So that brings us to 1968. Nixon's back, baby. Uh, the thing about Richard Nixon is he never forgets a grudge and he hates to lose. So he came back like, okay, if I lost because of television, I'm going to be the best at television that anyone ever was or ever will be. So he had a two-pronged TV strategy and never appeared anywhere that his campaign was not in control. He had no public debates with opponent Hubert Humphrey. Documentarian Eugene Jones made a series of short film collages uh, tying the Democrats' party turmoil to the problems of the country and the world. If you put images of people in Vietnam alongside the 1968 convention riots... You're making a statement that the Democrats are responsible for everything, or they don't care, or they can't handle things. You're making a lot of statements without making any statements. Without words, there's nothing to fact check. There's nothing to quote. You just get gut emotional reactions made out of uh, uh, montage and collage filmmaking and dissonant soundtracks. Hey. It's incredible. I love them. I, they're vile garbage, but they are art house films. <laughs> like, after the campaign, Jones tried to get his spots curated in museums, uh, but was rejected because, no, no, we don't do commercials. <laughs> uh, the most controversial one was just called convention. Uh, it was even more anarchic than the uh, than the norm for the series, because it was meant to air on NBC's Laugh-In uh, comedy program. Oh. Uh, it was pulled after one airing after Outcry, but that again gave it new legs as the controversy became a news item. Let's show this to you again. Free media is very powerful. In fact, I'm going to show you what I'm talking about. Okay. So, uh, would you vote for that guy, just looking kind of confused over images of dying soldiers in Vietnam or, or laughing next to pictures of American poverty? I'm not sure I'd vote for him, but I'm not sure I'd vote for the person who organized this ad either. <laughs> so, really, no, yeah. What Do you think this is effective? Yes, because it's really confusing. <laughs> 
It uh, seems like the thing I'd see in the basement of the art institute on some like traveling exhibition, and I'd be like, "What? What is this about?" <laughs> I, I mentioned the two-pronged campaign, right? The the second prong was a series of hour-long paid programs where campaign-selected citizens would ask uh, the candidate campaign-approved questions. Of course. Uh, the press was entirely barred from these sessions. Of course. Uh, the programs were produced by a young Roger Ailes. If you recognize that name, it's probably because he went on to be the first CEO of the Fox News Corporation in 1996. <laughs> Earlier this month, he, he just resigned under a number of sexual harassment uh, uh, accusations. Oh! Guess I should recognize his name. Eh, probably. Uh, he was like 26, 28. He was fresh-faced and ready to change the world. And yeah, he, he seriously super did. You can read about all of this in a fantastic book called The Selling of the President by Joe McGinnis. McGinnis was a uh, journalist who just got himself embedded in the TV branch of Nixon's campaign. He called up the Humphrey campaign first, and they said no, so he called up Nixon, and they're like, yeah, sure, write a book. <laughs> and he did, and it's phenomenal. To read it. Oh, yeah, it's one of my favorite books. Humphrey's TV campaign does have some notable points, including probably the most significant uh, comedy ad in presidential campaign history. <laughs> So what? what we just watched was a, a man who begins laughing and then continues to just crack up as the camera pans to a screen showing Spiro Agnew for vice president, uh, Nixon's vice presidential running mate. Uh, he, he begins coughing uh, as it cuts to a title card saying, this would be funny if it weren't so serious. Spiro Agnew was a political nobody who came out of nowhere. The idea is to just ridicule the thought that this guy could be one step from the presidency. Okay, I get that now. It's a weird commercial. Yeah, the, this that just pops up, you know, in between your your evening it, show. And, and yeah, you go from Jack Parr to someone laughing so much at the idea of Spiro Agnew that that he starts hawking up loogies to drink your Ovaltine. Yeah, it's now, a, little, a little weird. That one was also from Tony Schwartz, the guy who made the Daisy ad. Not surprised. I, I can see his it's, style. It's all about the audio. He, he's an audio engineer and archivist. 1972 comes around, and it continues Nixon's new command of television as a medium. His campaign this time was produced by the November Group, which is a dream team of ad executives and talent from basically all the top Madison Avenue firms. So we've got positive ads showing him in the White House with foreign leaders doing the work, being so presidential, whereas uh, McGovern isn't. You know, he, he's, he's an outsider. How does he know how to run the country in the midst of this war, in the midst of everything that's happening in 1972? Look at how great Nixon is. Now, his attack ads were more effective including one on McGovern's uh, defense budget, which was directed personally by H.R. Hadleman, who was Nixon's chief of staff and probably more famous for going on to serve jail time in the Watergate scandal. Mm. And hearing the name Hadleman a thousand times in All the President's Men because of that. 
That one was an image of all the nation's um, armed forces represented by toy, toy soldiers and like toy battleships and uh, a big hand coming and wiping away like a third of uh, the Marines, a quarter of the army, half the naval carriers. So someone got really upset at like a game of risk or whatever. It's like that. <laughs> But in the end, uh, look at how McGovern is, is going to ruin America's military. As a stark contrast, McGovern's ads were, were uh, cinema verite pieces by Charles Guggenheim, showing the candidate talking to regular folks out in the world, like going into factories, walking neighborhoods, and talking about the issues, talking about uh, the failures of the Nixon administration, and how America has a brighter future ahead of it, as long as we change course now and, and fix things. Actually, the, the film The Candidate, also starring Robert Redford, it's the year of Robert Redford. Uh, <laughs> it featured the same strategy earlier in the year for this fictional Senate campaign that the movie was about. Is that a coincidence? I don't know. I didn't find any connection about it, except remembering this Robert Redford film I kind of like. <laughs> And seeing what year it came out. I'm not saying that Guggenheim ripped him off. I don't know. So how are you feeling so far, dear? My foot's asleep. That's as good a reason for any <laughs> for halftime time. We'll be right back after this quick break. You like ice, I like ice. Everybody likes ice. The president, hang out the banner, beat the drum. We'll take ice to Washington. Vote for Eisenhower. So, how's your foot? It's either good or it's going to be in pain soon. Oh, sorry. I was talking to the listener. Rude! <laughs> Things have been just sort of ad, 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 and people are wondering, you said things were going to get kind of cynical. It's time for things to get kind of cynical. <laughs> See, because now uh, we're going to skip ahead a bit to 1980. Uh, the 1980 campaign didn't innovate that much in the form of the ads themselves, but in their funding. Let's talk about political action committees. Okay! <laughs> a PAC is basically a, a form of organization that can collect money and spend it with certain regulations, like any other kind of organization. They came from the election reform of 1974, which uh, limited the amount of money that could be donated to campaigns. But there is a loophole, because a political action committee is not a campaign. Uh-huh. If you're paying attention to stuff that, that goes on with campaigns and people talking about them, you're going to hear a lot about PACs, you're going to hear a lot about super PACs, and we're going to get to those once they get invented. But 1980 is the first time they really come on the scene and have an impact. What kind of impact? Well, political action committees spent a total of $12 million to support Reagan's campaign and 50000 to support President Carter's campaign. What? What? That's a big difference. It is. It, it, that's, that's, big, big, that's a big difference. Uh, it's a big, big. It's a big difference. <laughs> big difference there. Now, the, the 1976 Supreme Court case, Buckley versus Vallejo, defined uh, the, these campaign finance laws uh, could reach only party and candidate committees, organizations with the major purpose of electing candidates or speech that expressly advocated the election or defeat of candidates. So 
as long as an organization avoided language like Smith for Congress or elect or defeat or specific calls for action like that, they could run ads without being subject to campaign finance restrictions. Aww. So if you make someone look awesome or you make a policy that happens to be associated with someone look awesome, that's okay. That's not a direct call to action. Or, on the flip side, making one of those things look awful. Tricky. PACs must also act independently without cooperating with any candidate or, or campaign. They, they just have to be on their own, no coordination. That's the rules. Sometimes yeah. they break those mm-hmm. rules and get fined. Sometimes they break those rules and don't get found out and don't get fined. <laughs> but that's the rules. The, the next big uh, step in the development of PACs as we have them today is the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act of 2002, also known as the McCain-Feingold Act, which tried to reduce the influence of money in electoral campaigns. It did that by capping the contributions by interest groups and national political parties to candidates, but that money still exists. It just started going to PACs instead. It's like squeezing a balloon and it just blows out the other side. Yeah. That's kind of what McCain-Feingold did to, to Pax, basically. So, yeah. A little okay. bit. A little bit. A bit. It did a lot of other things, including a uh, stand-by-your-ad provision, which is why after 2002, so 2004 and on, you always see candidates saying, and I approved this message at the beginning or the end. Oh. That's, that's from that law. Oh. Well, I mean, I was like... 14. So it makes sense that I wouldn't have noticed that that wasn't a thing before then, but I, I didn't realize that that was so, like, new. Mm-hmm. 2010 uh, brought a couple of famous Supreme Court and federal court decisions relating to uh, the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. Citizens United versus the Federal Election Commission. It's often just referred to as Citizens United. So you're going to hear a lot of people screaming about, we need to overturn Citizens United. This is what they're talking about. So uh, that case overturned some parts of the McCain-Feingold Act, including uh, the provisions that prohibited corporations, including nonprofits and unions, from making independent expenditures and electioneering communications. So just open the floodgates uh, for any sort of organization to make these donations. The, the speechnow.org versus FEC ruling two months later really allowed the, the impact to be felt. Uh, they, they ruled that contributions to candidates, parties, and even other PACs, uh, they, they could accept unlimited contributions from individuals, unions, and corporations, both profit and not-for-profit, for the purpose of making independent expenditures. Uh, again, reinforcing the rule that these organizations cannot cooperate and cannot collaborate with the campaign itself. Uh-huh. However, even if you're not secretly against the rules cooperating, hopefully they're not run by idiots. Hopefully yeah. they're run by people who can look at a news cycle and see what's going on and how they can pitch in. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> you don't need to collaborate to collude, essentially, in practice. Yeah. 
So, so those two rulings and uh, their effect on uh, the the BCRA gave rise to the Super Pack. It wears a cape. It goes whoosh. Regular packs are able to donate to candidates, while super packs cannot. That's one big difference between them. However, super packs can raise and spend unlimited amounts of money from any source. Mm, so it's a villain. <laughs> Perhaps. It's actually a super villain. Perhaps. When this came down, the, the uh, scenario everyone was afraid of is that now elections are just going to be bought and sold by wealthy corporations. And so far... What's uh, happened is that uh, super PAC contributions come from wealthy individuals. So it's they're being bought by individual by, people. Yeah. Not uh, the companies, the individuals. Right. Because that's better? Yeah, not so much. I mean, at least it doesn't reinforce corporate personhood. Yeah, I, I, there, there's that. So pack ads are everywhere now. Uh, if you've got the money, you can make an ad. And it's not just television, of course. It's polling, uh, direct mail, anything that would help they're doing. But the topic of this podcast is television ads. So that's what we're going to focus on. Uh, the most effective pack funded ad is likely the Swift Boat Veterans for Truth's Any Questions ad in 2004. With a series of uh, thoroughly debunked statements uh, from people who claimed to have served with John Kerry uh, and were later found to, to have those claims a bit trumped up, a bit exaggerated uh, out of context, that, that his statements uh, about his war service record were uh, themselves exaggerations and lies. Swift boat veterans for truth. Who came up with that? Uh, I don't know. Somebody... Did they just, like, pick words out of a bowl? Well, John Kerry served on a swift boat. Oh. He, he was a swift boat veteran. Okay. And through their name, they're implying that he is a swift boat veteran for lies. Oh, okay. I didn't know a swift boat was actually a thing. Yeah. It, it is a type of boat that served in Vietnam. Makes more sense now. <laughs> now that we, we've sort of laid the groundwork for, uh... Where some of these ads are going to be coming from, from here on out. Let's get back to our timeline, shall we? Okay. 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 Uh, probably the most famous positive ads, because, I mean, people have been painting themselves with, you know, sunny terms and, and trying to sell optimism for as long as they've been trying to sell anything. But the best at it is the, the Morning in America campaign from Reagan's 1984 re-election campaign. He was working on his image as, you know, the, the warm grandpa of America, presiding over an end to the Cold War and an end to the 70s, thank God. So uh, I'm going to show you one of these, too. It's morning again in America. Today, more men and women will go to work than ever before in our country's history. So what's your first reaction? Oh, that wedding dress. <laughs> also, I was waiting for them to say Folgers. <laughs> What's in your cup? It absolutely is a Folgers ad. It, it is, totally is I, coffee. It's idyllic suburban life. I was, I was thinking. It's got that weird, like, like glowy. Yeah. 
frostiness that they mm-hmm. used to do on all the Folgers commercials in the 90s. It's definitely selling a drink of some kind. It, it's beer or it's iced tea or it's or it's coffee. It's something. It's like Lipton or, or coffee grounds, yeah. not beer. After seeing these uh, idyllic images uh, of suburban life with soft music, w- would you vote to reelect that candidate who, who uh, is associating himself with these images? I mean, I've never wanted to live in the suburbs, so <laughs> no. I don't think you've had a single nice thing to say about any Republicans' ad. <laughs> or, you know, you haven't had a single good thing to say about anyone's ad, I think. Because that might underline it. Yeah. The, the, none of the ones I've you did, seen. You didn't like Daisy. You didn't like the laughing ad. So, okay, okay. Yeah. Have it had any feelings like triggered of, ooh, I want to vote for that person? More like, ugh. <laughs> Now, on on the other side of the campaign, we, we have Mondale making points about the widening gulf between the wealthy and the poor, which were facts. Like, the, mm-hmm. the, the effects mm-hmm. of Reaganomics were beginning to set in by 1984, and you could point to statistics. However, that doesn't stand up against the, this image that's being sold. Yeah. No matter how true something can be, if people don't feel it, they're not going to make a decision based on that. Yeah. It makes sense. And, again, back to that beginning question. Is this a case of the more things change, the more they stay the same? So that brings us to 1988. Uh, George Bush served as Reagan's vice president, so uh, Reagan was still very, very popular. So just keep on keeping on. He, he borrowed the same winning strategy, while his opponent, uh, Governor Michael Dukakis, had... No apparent strategy when it came to... And, like, the worst last name? Late in the campaign, he started trading on the fact that he was a son of Greek immigrants. You know, a real uh, American dream story. Well, now I feel bad. Of course, this is a point he could have made in a TV ad and never did. (laughs) Never did. (laughs) So, uh, Bush's The Future ads were basically Morning in America 2. However, this time... He was in them. Uh, one point about the Morning in America series is you don't see Reagan. It's just Americans. Whereas uh, in the future, you see uh, President Bush with his grandchildren uh, having picnics and enjoying in this idyllic suburban life that uh, the Republicans brought us for the last eight years. And let's go for four more. That's, that's the message of the campaign. So let's go back to what the PACs were doing at the same time. Okay. One ran a controversial ad about William Horton, who was a... Horton, here's a who? Uh, Horton stabs people. William Very Hort- different story there. Very, very <laughs> different story. William Horton was a criminal with a life sentence being served in Massachusetts, uh, who took advantage of a weekend furlough program uh, a number of times. And on one of these weekends, when he, he was out of prison, he kidnapped a couple, tortured the man, and, and raped the woman. Okay, definitely not Horton Hears Who. Uh, yeah, Dr. Seuss has no... <laughs> he, he completely disavows this Horton. Bad Horton. Very bad Horton. The, this pack uh, aired an ad with those facts and with a scary mugshot. They renamed William Horton to Willie, and they, they used all of this to attack Dukakis' record on crime. The Bush campaign disavowed it, but nearly all of their attacks... In the whole campaign, uh, in speeches, in the debates, and especially in their television ads, 
referenced the furlough program itself uh, without ever mentioning Horton by name. Now, uh, this campaign was being managed uh, in part by Roger Ailes, who in his time between Nixon and Fox News, he was working with Bush, as well as Lee Atwater, a character we haven't mentioned yet. Now, campaign manager Lee Atwater said, by the time we're finished, they're going to wonder whether Willie Horton is Dukakis's running mate. So that's the strategy. Bring him up as much as possible without explicitly bringing him up. So that brings us to the revolving door ad, and this is another one you gotta see. His revolving door prison policy gave weekend furloughs to first-degree murderers not eligible for parole. So, what do you think about that one? It's brutal. It's so brutal. That's so brutal. It is a gut punch of an ad. It is... And it worked. <laughs> it fucking worked. Th- though I do have a problem with the revolving door image because they were going out and coming right back in and not actually going anywhere. Well, they were coming in from the outside. They were spending all of like two seconds in prison and then coming right back out. That's what that was. It looked That's... like they were spending two seconds outside of prison. <laughs> the, the geography could be a bit clearer, quite frankly. Yeah. So uh, that ad was produced by Roger Ailes. Uh, again, attacking the furlough program. The ad is uh, a line of prisoners walking through a revolving door and coming right back out while uh, a dour narrator mentions Dukakis's record on crime. And again, making sure to mention the furlough program, kidnap and rape, but not mentioning William Horton. What it does do, I don't know if you noticed uh, this detail, the only person who makes eye contact with the camera is the ad's only black actor. Of course. Of course. I did not notice that, but of course. He makes eye contact right on the word murderers in the phrase first degree murderers. <sighs> now, some might say that this is reading too much into it, that this is coincidence, And they might be right, but I'm going to uh, go back to Lee Atwater, a campaign manager who's an expert in race baiting and dog whistle tactics and is famous for an interview he gave on Reagan's version of the Southern strategy. Basically, the, the point he makes is that in the 50s, you can come out and be blatantly awfully racist. But in the 60s, you've got to talk about busing. You've got to talk about states' rights to to determine their their own path. And in the 70s, at this point, you got to get even more estranged. You got to get even more abstract. You just talk about tax cuts. So this sort of dog whistle tactic where you send a message to the Wallace voter, that is the George Wallace uh, segregation now, segregation forever, George Wallace. You just send them a little bit of a light like, yeah, we, we know what you're afraid of. We're your guy. So, uh, is that moment of eye contact mm-hmm. uh, an example? Possibly. You seem convinced. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty good chance pretty that good chance. that's what they were going for. Yeah. Do you want to take a moment before we move I'm, on? I'm good. I will just be here. Angry. Because we're going to change the topic now. Okay, good. We're going to talk about uh, uh, a new kind of TV spot that that started blowing up in 1992, talk show appearances. Oh, goodness. 
Nixon himself appeared on Ed Sullivan back in the day, but it was in 1992 when the talk show circuit became a thing. It became a way to connect, a way to humanize. Regis and Kathy Lee. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in the campaigns from 1992 to 2012, there have been over 200 appearances by presidential candidates on talk shows. I'm sure by the time the 2016 uh, numbers are in, we'll we'll be uh, knocking on 300. So Bill Clinton was a young, charming alternative to to George Bush, and he capitalized on that. The Oprah Show was on the air. Maury, this was also the year Jerry Springer came out. Uh, but the the format of audience members posing questions to guests was ingrained as a way we connect to the people. So 1992 was also the first year with a uh, town hall debate format. And it's been a staple of the presidential debates ever since. So you can see that this has also continued. Then there was, there's the time when everybody has to do Leno and Letterman, which yeah. gave way to everybody has to do the Daily Show. And then you have to do Daily Show primaries. And then you need to appear on Saturday Night Live. Right. <laughs> and now we're to the point where not a campaign, but if you have something. A, a policy to pitch, you have to show up on Between Two Ferns or Carpool Karaoke. Carpool Karaoke! <laughs> and I think I would make the argument that all of this, you can draw a direct line to Bill Clinton showing up on the Arsenio Hall show and playing the saxophone. Yep. That makes sense. Clinton's campaigns uh, also brought us a very familiar kind of ad, or, or at least perfected them. Uh, the positive-negative structure. So something that starts like, uh, Bill Clinton thinks that uh, children are the future. And then, you know, it, it's got uh, these bright primary colors, and, and there's billowing wind, and then there's like a gong, and Bob Dole eats babies. <laughs> you know, and everything's in black and white. I wish that was a real commercial. <laughs> Exactly and as you described it. Using time to just make quick, punchy contrast, and then coming back and ending on a positive note, like, don't eat babies. Vote for Clinton. They don't taste good. <laughs> don't eat babies. Eat cats instead. <laughs> They're delicious. More protein. Skipping ahead a bit. 2004 brings us internet advertising. Uh, internet ads... Basically, you've got a lot of video, so it's the same medium-ish as TV spots, but it's a lot more targeted because uh, it's just the way the internet works. So you've got uh, smaller audiences. You're you're going straight to a hand-picked demographic. You know, instead of everybody watching uh, Saturday Night at the Movies, you're going to everybody reading this blog. It's a lot more focused. So then the ads can be a lot more focused, sharper, more outrageous. In 2008, internet advertising started getting a lot better. Because, <laughs> mm. you know, things improve with time. Uh, analytics to do that focus got a lot better. Also, that things will go viral outside of who you intended them to. Yeah. So maybe not quite so sharp, maybe not quite so outrageous. It was a lesson that was learned in 2008. Probably the the most significant uh, of all web ads was Will I Am's musical remix of Obama's New Hampshire concession speech. It was a creed written into the founding documents, 
that declare the destiny of a nation. Yes, we can. Where he uh, basically turned that speech into a song with like 30 different celebrity cameos. And it defined the message of hope for the Obama campaign from the early primaries to November. Where before, you, you might want to put something out like the Daisy ad to get it uh, shown on the news. The, the revolving door ad gets shown on the news all the time. Now, you just want to get something that people will share on Facebook. That's the free media because it's yeah. even freer, you know? <laughs> You're turning your audience into your staff that way. Yeah, they're doing the work for you. 2012 brought us the first post-Citizens United presidential race with the re-election of Obama and the uh, challenge of Mitt Romney. You've got super PACs in the game for the first time. Uh, it was also the most negative campaign uh, on TV. 75% of all ads were attack ads. <laughs> They didn't have much nice to say about one another. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, Looking back, that makes sense. So uh, it's too soon to draw any conclusions for 2016. We're in the middle of um, the, the post-convention waves. The, the general elect, uh, campaign hasn't technically started yet. How? But How? If we were to make any predictions, it's clear that this is the social media election. Oh, God, yeah. This, this might be the year where uh, TV ads, they're, they're surely going to exist. They're not going to go away any more than direct mail has, any more than billboards have. But it's to the point where I might just delete Facebook. Right. It's just annoying. We're in the middle of an election where candidates' tweets are what gets put on cable news shows. It's a battle waged by interns photoshopping memes. Yeah! <laughs> Ugh, I can't stand it. At this point, I'm just like, come on, someone have a baby so I can just, like, look at your baby pictures that are flooding Facebook. I need, I need a break from all this reshared stuff. And I don't really like looking at people's baby pictures, but that's all I want right now. <laughs> or, like, post your vacation pictures of vacations I am not on, and so I can be jealous. Uh, now now that history has caught up to today, I guess uh, all I've got to ask is, what what have you learned? A lot of things I did not know. Oh? The, the names of people who didn't become president? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've learned I'm very judgmental against commercials. Yeah. <laughs> See, that's the thing. Everybody is. <laughs> Nobody likes ads. Everybody thinks that ads don't affect them. Every study has proven that they're wrong. I like the Geico commercial with the pig that went to <laughs> It's the only one I can think of right now. What do you think is the reason for the correlation between having the better ad campaign and having more electoral votes in November? Like, do, like is it do you, having the better message or people just making better ads? Yeah. Do you think it's just that the ads make them look better, or is it the fact that they have their act together what makes the better ads? I think it's the ads. Yeah? Be because people can twist that however they want it to be to get it across. Mm -hmm. They can take... If you're talented at creating a, you know, a commercial or whatever, you can twist it however you want to get attention to get right. someone's interest. So you're looking at the difference between Nixon 60 and Nixon 68. I think that's where the power is. It's not actually in what you say. 
And there's the cynicism right back in. All right. <laughs> Be nice if it was the other way, but I don't think it is. Do you have anything to say on the questions posed at the top? Is this a story of how presidential campaign politics changed in America the way advertising as a whole did? I think it's both. Yeah. Yeah. Th these ads clearly do follow trends in the way everything is advertised, right? Yeah. You're, you're never going to get that I like Ike chant. The or that I think Kennedy thing that I last, love. Yeah, that's the, the that's the one I love. I love the Kennedy okay. little thing that seems like it should go before a movie. I guess the the last product that was sold with that hard sell was head on, applied directly to the forehead. <laughs> it doesn't happen anymore. I don't think you can really separate it mm -hmm. as it's a story about this. Like it, it, they are so intertwined and they evolved so strongly together. In my opinion. I don't yeah. know. What do you think? I think you're absolutely right. I think that the, the the fact that a lot of these are made from, you know, outside houses, outside contractors, who in the other three years in between are doing the work for all other sorts of, of advertising campaigns, it, it's a sample of how these things are presented all the time. Mm -hmm. And while there is a clear line uh, from one campaign to the next trying to figure out what worked trying to innovate or trying to throw out what didn't work. That shows that uh, these ads are a special class, a special kind of advertising. Mm -hmm. It's not as separate a as one might think. Yeah. Right? Like, you don't get that Bob Dole eats babies sort of thing. About cereal. About Right. You don't... <laughs> Kellogg's has so many nutrients, but General Mills has arsenic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I agree there. I agree. So uh, if you have thoughts uh, about any of these discussion topics, I, I guess they got posed in here, hash it out on our Facebook page or give us a tweet or uh, in our Lister Mail segment. We'd love to hear from you in any of those ways. So I guess while we're talking about that stuff, we should do our break before the proper sign outy bits. I suppose so. Here's that break. Woo! So there you have it, our most timely and topical episode to date. Yep. I, I guess I should point out to all of our American listeners that uh, as cynical as things get, it is very important to participate. I encourage everyone uh, to get registered and go out and vote. And even if this presidential race has you so burned out that you do not care, there's still your uh, House rep, two-thirds of states have a Senate race, and your state and local races uh, electing people that have far more power in your day-to-day -day life than uh, the presidency. And quite honestly, you still got to care. Even if you don't want to, <laughs> you got to go vote. And Not that, voting doesn't help anything. And that other third of our listenership, the, the non-Americans, whenever you get to participate in politics, go ahead. And there's more to it than just voting. Demonstrate, get involved, get educated, organize. Wish upon a star for us here? <laughs> that's, that's not a terribly uh, effective praxis, but okay. Hey, if they can't vote for us uh, over here, <laughs> they can at least like send some positive vibes over here. I kind of feel like we need it. So let's get to our letters. Guess who wrote? You'll never guess. <gasps> who? Who? It's Purin. Yay! 
The most recent prompt was for people to share their favorite ads. So Purin wanted to point out some of the really melodramatic short films that pass for ads in uh, Thailand. They are a treat. Giving by True Move Corporation and Unsung Hero from Thai Insurance. I watched them. I, I love that people who share them on YouTube give them clickbaity titles like, oh, you're going to cry three times. Like, if any commercial is going to do it, that, those are the ones. <laughs> so thanks, Boren. Thanks for sharing. Flavo vibe. She wrote uh, to tell us about her favorite commercial uh, for a camera, good 28 years before she was even born, that has Barry Manilow singing a catchy, catchy jingle for it. It's the Polaroid <laughs> Swinger, by the way. Yes, it's quite a song. It, it seems like something that should be like in a movie as well, mm -hmm. like parts of it. She also told us a fun story about her family and... Uh, a lot of family members uh, like to change out words of songs and mm -hmm. sing them silly, which I enjoyed. That was a funny story. Thank you for sharing, <laughs> Flava Five. So uh, that brings us to Brian, who has my dream job, uh, working for the boat tours, the architectural tours that uh, go you'd, up and down the river. Really, you should just start your own tour company. <laughs> okay, I'm going to need a boat. But in any case, uh, Brian's favorite ad is the 84 Apple ad. Uh, it aired in 1984 and is themed on the book 1984, directed by Ridley Scott, uh, not long after Blade Runner. Uh, he says, uh, I don't know of many other ads that were made by major directors outside of the horrifying David Lynch PlayStation ads. Here's something you probably didn't know. Uh, the very first Got Milk ad directed by Michael Bay. Really? Yes. Yes, it was. So thank you, Brian. Leanne sent us an email about the North American House Hippo PSA ad that ran in Canada. Look it's this so up. It's it so is. Cute. I just want a little house hippo. Yeah. Though I have to say that I really thought this commercial was gonna like turn out like don't leave food out because of rats. <laughs> I I didn't I didn't see where it was going. The message of the PSA is to just don't believe everything you see on TV and think critically. Which I think might also be the lesson of this episode. Yeah. How good, about that? Good connection there. She also mentioned um, the Canadian Heritage Minutes, which I haven't had a chance to look into yet, but I'm very, very interested. So thank you for uh, mentioning that. I mm -hmm. can't wait to check it out soon. Thanks, Leanne. Taylor wrote and brought up the very, very famous 1-800-CONTACTS ad. Look! Look with your special eyes! My brand! I also love that commercial <laughs> so much. I'm glad you appreciate it as well. So, so thanks. Thank you, Taylor. Sapinacious brings up some Japanese advertising. Japanese ads are famous for being a bit bonkers, a bit wacky. And uh, the Sagata Sanshiro series uh, of ads for the Sega Saturn uh, do not disappoint on that front. Basically, it's a series of, of this man finding people, enjoying themselves out in public, and then beating them senseless so that they will stay home and play Sega Saturn instead. Uh, she also points out in particular the one where he appears as Santa Claus to a bunch of children and makes them cry. Santa, no. So definitely, uh, if you've got a minute, look up Sagata Sanshiro, the, the campaign for the Sega Saturn. They are a treat. VGC Kenny, also on a video game tick, uh, wanted to share with us the uh, Pokemon Coliseum ads featuring like a protest song and march to, to save all the Pokemon. 
as sort of a send up to 60s uh, uh, protest and hippie culture. It's a it's it's catchy. So thank you, VGC Kenny. Uh, Richard sent us an email and brought up a very famous commercial, the Montgomery Flea Market commercial. I hear it's just like a mini mall. Yeah. Oh, all right, cool. Yeah. Wait, that's a selling point? <laughs> Is that it's a mini mall? I really want someone to do that at like a wedding mm-hmm. as like a dance. Like there needs to be a choreographed dance. And that one actually was Richard's honorable mention. Absolute favorite is the Chicagoland classic of Eagle Man, which I was not familiar with Eagle Man. I did not grow up here. But you have to look at those low rates. Check out Eagle Man, though. The suit is terrifying that that person is wearing. So thank you, Richard. We've got another one from Claritic, who uh, has been into Australian politics for a while now, and uh, shares an ad that isn't technically an ad. It's a ad agency's entry into a contest. There's a show called Gurin Nation, which is about advertising, specifically political advertising. And uh, they had a segment where they'd get ad agencies to sell the unsellable. Uh, one pitch was to make uh, Australia want to invade New Zealand. But the one Claritic shared was an ad selling the, the Green Party itself, which is a really cute ad, and uh, I, I like it a lot. The Greens tried to buy the ad from the agency, which didn't work out because uh, the network owned it. So instead, when it came time, they just contracted them to make something just like it instead. So thanks for that story, Claire Tick. You were a lot closer to the topic at hand than you thought you were. How about it? Rebecca is making her way through the backlog and had a question about our Comics Code episode. Rebecca works at a video game retailer and sees customers with small children that often don't have much of an opinion about content or or the fear-mongering of yesteryear. For the most part, parents seem more worried about the cost of their purchase uh, and just getting on with their day. So the question she posed was, do we think that as time goes on, there will be a resurgence of strict content control or do you think it's going to get more relaxed? It depends on how you look at it, like what your lens is. Because, like, 16 Candles is a PG movie with topless shower scenes. And a lot of F-bombs. You're not going to get either of those in a PG movie today. No. I mean, things come and go, and the way these uh, specific crackdowns is to specific events. So do I think something is going to happen that's going to get people to react with fear? Yes, it's only a matter of time. It happens all the time, unfortunately. Yeah. On the other hand, there's like, it's so much easier to get whatever you're looking for uh, in the digital age of piracy and file sharing and streaming. What do you think, dear? I think I'm going with what you're saying, too. You know, it kind of evolves with what happens throughout the events taking place that always will affect the market and opinions of people that uh, make such decisions. But Mm -hmm. there's also, as you said, accessibility. So many things are more readily available, like older stuff's more available. Mm -hmm. They're continuing to, like, bring out, like, re-releasing stuff for this new console, but it's an old game, or this thing, Mm -hmm. and that, that I feel like... If people want it, if people like it, it's going to be available. Right. You know, there's there's too much of a, a need and interest. Uh, well, they're just going to go about it, getting it a different way, so we might as well kind of give it to them. 
kind of thing. Free enterprises corrupting your children. But yeah, I agree with you. Thank you. Our, our relationship is reaffirmed. On this, at least. <laughs> William sent us an email about favorite TV ad of all time is the You Can't Beat Us ad, which is a commercial for the NES. Apparently the first commercial for the NES that was to screen in Australia. And it is terrifying. Money for nothing music video style blocky CGI characters. Saying you cannot beat us in really, really, really creepy voices. Yeah. It just makes me think that if I buy the NES, the video game characters are going to murder me in my sleep. If you thought that uh, Duck Hunt Dog couldn't get more smug, you are wrong. Yeah, it's messed up. So thank you, William. So that's all of our mail. So if you'd like to send us some more mail, what's the address for that? History Honey's podcast at gmail.com. Thank you very much. And if you'd like to get in touch with us on social media, please like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter. We're uh, always looking to have more conversations that way. Check out our Facebook page and Twitter over the next two weeks, and we will post a listener mail prompt once we figure out exactly what it's going to be. While you're online, why don't you take the time to give us a rating and review in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you find our show. It uh, helps us out so much. We really appreciate it. And also, don't be afraid to share it with a friend. Send the link. Be like, hey, hey, they read my letter. Or, hey, hey, they talked about Richard Nixon in a new and exciting way. Not enough people talking about Nixon in 2016. <laughs> but in any case, if you need an extra uh, bit of impetus, an extra kick in the pants to uh, uh, give us a rating and review, it's my birthday this week. So yeah. like, if you want to do birthday something nice, boy. if you want to do something nice for me, that that's it'd just make my heart grow three sizes. I swear. He, he won't tell me what he wants. This is the first <laughs> thing he said that he's wanted for his birthday. <laughs> So help us make it come true, because I don't got any ideas. He's not being helpful to me. All I want is your love and affection, dear. Tell me what you want. At least what dessert I can make you. I'm just going to buy you lots of socks. Not even fun socks. I'll get you boring socks. As long as they're socks from your heart. They'll be socks from my spite. Yeah, so write the birthday boy review, please. So I guess that is all we got for this week. So I'm Elena. And I'm Grant. And history's better with with your your honey. honey.